0: If you are American, you may hear the phrase welfare state and instantly link it to Karl Marx, profligate European countries giving freebies to its populations. And if you're British, you may link it to broader tabloid stories of women having many children with many different fathers and trying to sponge off the state so they don't have to work. Indeed, one of the primary reasons for the vote for Britain to leave the European Union was about EU migrants allegedly sponging off the UK's generous benefit system. Furthermore, one of the primary differences between the right and left in today's politics is how to deal with the welfare state and how generous the state should be. Many of us have definitive views on the welfare state, even if we aren't exactly sure what the quote unquote welfare state is. One argument often made is that the welfare state is not really welfare and more about social insurance, social rights, social provision, and the regulation of the excesses of wealth inequality. Moreover, the biggest beneficiary of the welfare state is generally the middle classes. The name the welfare state is not a popular one amongst its architects. The father of the British welfare state, William Beveridge, disliked the term, claiming it implied a something-for-nothing or a Santa Claus state. The term the welfare state is very different depending on which country you live in, although almost every single advanced economy has a welfare state. So what exactly is the welfare state? There are usually three different strands or conceptions of this welfare state. The first is the welfare for the poor. This is generally the welfare state where non-contributors get something from the state. Food stamps in the United States or job seekers allowance in the United Kingdom are some examples. The second strand focuses on social insurance, social rights and social services. This would be social security and Medicare in the United States, national insurance and healthcare provision in the United Kingdom. This could also include public education as a form of social provision. This strand also includes pensions. In the UK, the government spends 20% of its budget on pensions 18% 18% on healthcare care, and 12% on education. These elements of the welfare state are generally seen as most popular, but sometimes aren't even considered part of the welfare state at all. The third conception of the welfare state highlights the role that the government plays in the economy. This is probably a bit more specialised, and not the type of analysis you would find in the tabloid press, but a more scientific method of trying to limit the excesses of wealth inequality and create a more balanced and fairer society. This includes government regulations, fiscal, monetary and labour market policies and broader promotions of growth. The welfare state is of course controversial. In an ideal society there would be no welfare state. But we don't live in a perfect world. The nature of modern society necessitates certain elements of a welfare state. So where does one start on a history of the welfare state? Generally, we could start in either the 15th or 16th century in England or the 19th century. But this, I think, is too limiting and underplays the welfare state's importance throughout history. Indeed, I would argue that the welfare state or a sort of proto welfare state goes back to the start of civilized society itself the sharing of resources was the very reason for the move from tribes and bands into civilizations as francis fukuyama states quote there is considerable speculation on the part of evolutionary psychologists that the almost universal contemporary practice of meal sharing christmas thanksgiving Passover, is derived from the millennia-long practice of sharing the proceeds of hunts. Furthermore, Fukuyama goes on to state, Many of the moral rules in this society are not directed at individuals who steal other people's property, but rather against those who refuse to share food and other necessities. Under conditions of perpetual scarcity, the failure to share can often affects the group's prospects for survival. Close quotes. The social contract is a theory originating out of the age of enlightenment. It concerns the legitimacy of the state over individuals. As I am sure you remember with the episode on Republicanism, This period is drowning in talk about the role of the state and how much authority it should have. John Locke and Jean-Jacques Rousseau argued that we can gain civil rights in return for accepting the obligation to respect and defend the rights of others, giving up some freedom to do so. The idea of what the social contract was depends on what you think the role of the state should be. In the Leviathan, Hobbes states that the basic deal underlying the state is you give up some rights to do quite whatever you please, And in return, the state gives you some basic security. Property rights, roads, currency, uniform weights and measures, external defense are all things you cannot give yourself. In early proto-states, population increases were brought about by technological innovations like the agricultural revolution. However, hunter-gatherer societies are well known for operating far below what they are capable of. The mere ability to produce more food will not automatically result in an increase in population. Indeed, some have argued that the ability to produce more food leads to less work, as food production becomes easier, resulting in more leisure time. The hunter-gatherer nature of sharing meant that they had the technology to plant seeds, and shift to agriculture. But the social expectations for sharing surpluses quickly quashes private incentives to move to higher levels of productivity. For example, see any single communist country seizing farmland and centralizing it. Francis Fukuyama posits the theory that, quote, people in early societies would not produce a surplus on their own until compelled to do so by rulers who could hold the whip hand over them the masters in turn might not want to work harder themselves but were perfectly happy to compel others to do so so once you have this system a surplus of food and resources it then becomes natural to tie the population to it the increase in population as a result of the increased productivity and food supply means that people are now tied to state production, they cannot afford not to be. The redistribution of food and resources essentially gives the nation state its power, it gives the state its raison d'etre, and was a crucial step in its very beginning. States were set up to increase production and then share the results, with the leaders perhaps skimming a little off the top. So why do humans feel a need to look after one another? And why don't we just let the neediest in society die and suffer? It is partly to do with altruism, but largely to do with power and the survival of power. Machiavelli once said that one should keep the body politic in good health and security. If you keep the ones you dominate in good health and keep them content... They will be better off and provide more taxes, labour and military service. The state should prevent disease and stop riot and insurrection, as most revolutions in history start as bread or food riots. Indeed I would say that most states in history have tried, subconsciously or not, I do not know, to keep their populations as poor and needy as they can without the population at large rebelling. The line between what the people will accept and will not accept has naturally increased over time, as our technological capabilities have increased and capacity the state can produce increases. The biggest increases in government provision for its population has always been after major incidents and crises, such as the end of wars, where millions of young men would come back home and demand, often with an underlying threat of violence, an increase in their social provision, which results in a more general increase in living standards, but results in the state getting ever more power. Pre-capitalist societies did not have real economies. There was little planning and little care given to economic logic of profit and loss. Society was not governed by the market, and not by supply and demand. Life was governed by religious, moral and social rules that were meant to limit exploitation and protect the poorest and weakest, as they were part of your tribe. The development of capitalism, in especially 19th century Britain, meant that these traditional values were ripped away, as society changed rapidly once again, With the onset of the Industrial Revolution. Meaning that for much of the 19th century, in Britain and other rapidly industrialising countries, there was little in order to stop the excesses of wealth quality. A development of the 20th century welfare system was an attempt to reinstate the pre-industrial revolution's methods of bringing welfare to the people, but this time in a more centralised way. So we could start the welfare state, as we know it, with Rome and their famed bread and circuses, which was used somewhat satirically to describe politicians, and politicians in those days were extremely rich, giving out free food and entertainment as a means of keeping power. However, these breads and circuses were often one-off donations, one-off events, and it hardly counts as an institution of the welfare state. As the Middle Ages developed into the early modern period, we start to see institutions and the state formalise. In the early 14th century in England, there were laws to regulate the economy in the wake of the Black Death, while the Tudors in the 16th century began to regulate the economy somewhat. They introduced laws to regulate apprenticeships and labour, controlling beggars and vagabonds, and implementing a degree of poor relief. The relief system, known as the Poor Laws, aimed to provide statutory help to the poor by using money provided by local churches, monasteries and charitable hospitals and distributing it in a more secular way. This poor relief essentially stayed the same until the 20th century. The Poor Relief Laws were followed by most of British colonies, including colonial America, where similar laws were enacted. The Poor Law of 1834, passed by Earl Grey's government, yes, the tea was named after him, was supposed to be the peak of a liberalised capitalist society. The labour market was to be free from outside interference. Wages and prices were to be set by market processes. Property and taxes and public responsibility for welfare were to be minimized, and poor relief was designed to deter all but the truly destitute. However, when a commission was set up to view how the poor law had affected people, they were shocked to see how little difference it had made. What they hadn't realized was the Industrial Revolution had completely disrupted communities, and the carefully balanced ecosystems. It took a while, but eventually the conditions in mines and the cotton industry were a new threat to public welfare. And so by the middle of the 19th century, the laissez-faire attitude to the population's welfare was being looked at from all sides. It was the early philosophical radicals, our favorite utilitarians, Jeremy Bentham, and later James Mill and John Stuart Mill, who argued that government should only exist to secure the happiness of the governed. By the end of the 19th century, the state in Britain could be seen as appalling. In mid-century Paddington, the workhouse infirmary had one towel for every 31 people. Waste and dirt were prevalent, and soil heaps and cesspools were common sites. There were frequent outbreaks of cholera that affected many, Mostly, though, the working classes. Then came Edwin Chadwick, a follower of Bentham and a social reformer. He managed to get Parliament to investigate the situation, and he produced a report. The Report on the Sanitary Condition of the Labouring Population of Great Britain, 1842. Chadwick's report became one of the greatest works on arguing for state intervention. Chadwick's intervention resulted in various government bills to stop the spread of cholera and to aid public health. During this time, it saw the work of Marx and Engels, who began to take a real interest in the lives of the working classes. Works by Dickens started to focus the mind of people on the state of the poor. Perhaps it was the humanity of the situation, or maybe it was the increasingly revolutionary spirit in which much of this work was written that caused for the issue to be looked at with such urgency. The start of the modern welfare state in the Western world, however, was not in Britain. It was in Germany, under the arch-conservative Otto von Bismarck, who enacted the world's first social welfare laws. Not a man who did it on ideological grounds, it was a pure example of politicking, and to ward off other political parties, and any chance of revolt. A decade later, Denmark, New Zealand, and Australia launched old age pension schemes for themselves. Later, William Gladstone's Third Great Reform Act widened the vote, meaning that most men could now vote in elections. And they weren't going to start voting for the upper and aristocratic classes, who they thought didn't care about them. In Britain there was Neoliberalism and in the United States there was the Progressive Era. Both philosophies insisted that individual freedom was best fostered by not leaving people to their own devices, but by securing for them education, welfare and the security needed to exercise real authority. Britain's poor showing in the Boer War began a spur of asking questions about the state of the British people. With the rise of Germany and the United States, the British ruling classes began to wonder that maybe the British body politics was falling behind. If even some Dutch farmers could run the glorious British Empire into a close war, then what could Germany do to Britain? In a case of pure existential threat, With the sudden view that Germany had the world leading science-based industries like chemical engineering, pharmaceuticals, seeing it had great universities, a powerful army, a growing navy, and a stable political system, the British elite, for the first time in a century, had to begin to look within. This, remember, at a time when people like Francis Dalton were big into eugenics, and in the aftermath of Darwin's theories, on natural selection, there was a view that the ordinary working-class Britons were not as effective as their German equivalents. The 1906 election in Britain saw the seeds of its welfare state as a fixed and firm idea entering the political lexicon. The Liberal Party ran on a platform of free trade and as a defender of working-class living standards. The result was a massive landslide. And, the result of that massive landslide, was the 1907 budget. In it, there was introduced a different taxation rate for different incomes and a property tax. This meant that the richest would finally have to pay their fair share. They next brought in the Old Age Pensions Act of 1908. Some workers did have pensions, such as teachers, police officers and civil servants, but not manual labourers meaning that many manual labourers simply worked until they dropped. The Liberal plan was radical. It was also non-contributory, so anybody could claim welfare. There were other developments such as the increase in secondary schooling and government oversight in education. With the increase in education in 1906, free school meals were introduced to give children at least one good meal a day. With this, many middle-class commentators were shocked to find out that many children did not know how to eat with a knife and fork. Great change in political life, as we've seen, only seems to happen after catastrophic events. The bad thing for Europe, but the good thing for the welfare state, was that Europe had three such massive events in 30 years. The First World War, the Great Depression, and then the Second World War solidified the state's control through the welfare state. By the end of the Second World War, Europe and Japan were in ruins. Millions of men had been injured. Civilians had been through six years of hardship. People wanted change. Another thing that changed during the war was that the idea of government assistance became acceptable for the middle classes to accept. It was no longer just the working classes that wanted welfare. The welfare state in the 1940s became something that was to be on the side of social control of economic processes, rather than continuing to trust private enterprises to fulfil these obligations. What was also seen as true was that being for a welfare state was not to be against capitalism. John Maynard Keynes observed that welfare states were not a means of destroying capitalist markets but, in his idea, a more collective action for its more efficient management. The modern history of Britain's welfare state lies in the Second World War years. William Beveridge left his role as an economist at the London School of Economics to join Oxford. From the very start of the war, it was total war. Everything and everybody went into winning it. So, Ernest Bevin, Minister of Labour, asked Beveridge to take charge of the Department of Welfare. Beveridge refused, but did express interest in a report on manpower. The report was relatively unimportant in the grand scheme of things. Nevertheless, a couple of its recommendations were instituted. However, Bevin did not like Beveridge, thinking him conceited. So, when an opportunity to get rid of him to the Health Ministry presented itself, Bevan jumped at the opportunity to move him on. His new job at the Health Ministry was for a committee of officials to survey existing social insurance and allied services, and to make recommendations. That report became known as the Beveridge Report, though officially called the Social Insurance and Allied Services Report. It proposed that all people of working age should pay a weekly national insurance contribution. In return, benefits would be paid to people who were sick, unemployed, retired or widowed. Beveridge argued that this system would provide a minimum standard of living, quote unquote, below which no one should be allowed to fall. It recommended that the government should find ways of fighting the, quote-unquote, Five Giants on the Road of Reconstruction Of Want, Disease, Ignorance, Squalor and Idleness Beverage included as one of its three fundamental assumptions The fact that there would be a National Health Service of some sort A policy already being worked on in the Ministry of Health Such was the popularity of the report that it sold out its print run People were queuing in London to get their hands on the report. When the Labour Party won the 1945 general election, the Beveridge Report was enacted in full. The British welfare state was now born. Of course, it wasn't just in Britain where a welfare state was created. Most Western countries did bring in a welfare state, though they all did it in different ways. America too started on its road to welfare state but only providing a minimum level of insurance coverage, social welfare, and economic management. The Nordic nations perhaps went the furthest along the road of egalitarianism. Britain, as we've seen, went down the route of social insurance schemes based on universal principles. Germany, Austria, and France linked contribution and benefit levels to earning. These strong centralised states like Britain and France empowered central government agencies to deliver welfare, while the US emphasized the need for local government to deal with it. In France, Germany and Sweden, they established employer federations and trade unions as social partners. While the Anglo-Saxon countries went with the antagonistic view of trade unions as attempts were not made to include them as much as possible. Each system was different, but their fundamental aims were the same and became a universal characteristic of capitalist democracies. The first editions, All Welfare States 1.0, lasted from the period of 1940 to 1980-ish. Pretty much all welfare states had the following in common. 1. Social insurance. This was the cornerstone of the welfare state. Social insurance schemes are normally state-administered and designed to protect workers and their families against loss of earnings. National insurance or social security makes employees obliged to make regular contributions. The effect of risk pooling are to smooth out fluctuations in earnings. Low-paid workers, on average, benefit more than they contribute. Social insurance is basically untouchable in modern times. Number two, social assistance. This is the safety net of non-contribution benefits. It is to relieve those whose income is insufficient for their basic needs. Beveridge himself thought that this would be a temporary addition to the welfare state once full employment arrived. But the collapse of full employment and the dissipation of the nuclear family means that this has remained vital. It is generally funded through taxation and it is heavily gendered towards women and children. This is the least popular element of welfare. Tabloids often cause moral panics about work-shy scrounging and irresponsible single parents. But in reality, this is the nature of what the welfare state has to do if it's designed solely to focus on the neediest. Number three, publicly funded social services. Perhaps not seen by many as part of the welfare system, this is education, childcare, healthcare, government-subsidised public transport and legal aid. This is the least stigmatised and most egalitarian aspect of the welfare state. This could also include minimum wages, paid holiday and parental leave. Number 4. Social Work and Personal Social Services This is the section for more personalised forms of support, such as social work with families, children's services, social care for the elderly, This is mostly targeted at lower-class populations, with again women and children being the primary focus. A French sociologist described it as policing the family. You could see this as the state taking over pastoral care that religious organisations would have carried out in a less secular age. Number five, government of the economy. The nationalisation of industry, economic planning fiscal and monetary policy elements like this can be used to increase equality or if it's done wrong accidentally increase inequality it can support redistribution as part of this welfare state such as quantitative easing so beginning in the 1970s welfare state 1.0 came under attack in every country the ending of the gold standard and the decline of the industrial west meant that the welfare state needed to be changed. But how to do it was seen as a result of the politics of the time. The New Right Coalition of the 1970s saw demand to end the welfare state as they knew it. And so when they took power in the 1980s, under Reagan and Thatcher, this never actually happened. Instead, they reoriented the welfare state, cutting the social assistive part and leaving programmes the middle class liked the middle class who had voted for them. But it also meant that working class communities were devastated once the government removed funding from many industrial areas in the country. The second wave of the welfare state saw more market oriented reworkings of policies and large scale deregulation. This happened not just in the Anglosphere, but in Germany where unemployment benefit was cut, Sweden cut taxes, partly privatized social security and allowed unemployment to boom. But the primary drive was in the Anglosphere. Nixon's 1971 demonetization of gold was the primary cause of the 1970s economic shock. But then the 1973 oil shock showed how quickly the world was changing. Perhaps because people don't like talking about trade embargoes, because it makes it sound a little phantom menace. We might forget how big the 1973 oil shock was to the market economy. With the end of cheap energy, markets stopped expanding, and the stable money that had enabled the post-war growth was ended. This led to declining rates of profit, increasing deficits, and recurring fiscal crises, signalling that the world economy was slowing down. To some, this showed that the luxurious welfare state that had previously existed could no longer be sustainable. However, it took a few years before there was a new approach to these problems. The theories of John Maynard Keynes were still considered the answer to all of these issues, as it had worked before, so it should work again, shouldn't it? No. This time Keynesian politics caused a mix of recession and inflation, so governments reacted by taming big government, labour unions were treated as an enemy, and there was a reduction in social expenditure, cutting of taxes, and embracing open markets. The result was a limited embracing of Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman, coupled with support from business, right wing think tanks, and later institutions such as the IMF, World Bank, OECD, and the EU. The result was a neoliberal economic order prescribed for all countries, as the success of the Anglosphere was becoming obvious. What effect did this have on the welfare state? Well, the cutting of government enterprises and reduction of spending by the government and the privatization of previously unprofitable things like gold mines led to a massive increase in unemployment. When Thatcher came to power in 1979, the rate of unemployment shot up from 5.4% to 11.9%. In the United States, it rose to nearly 10%, doubling over the consistent rate of over the previous few decades. The pro-market policies divided people, for those in regular and stable employment, to those unemployed, and those in precarious employment. Tax cuts were across the board, as it was claimed that the benefits of this would trickle down. Government utilities were sold off, with many of the benefits going to those rich with capital. Government housing began to be sold off which went mostly to the lower middle classes who could afford to pay. Though this did result in huge windfalls in government coffers. Later in the 1980s, the government liberalized further the banking and financial sectors. The result of this was an increase in ability to find credit and loans. Easy credit operated as a substitute for wage rises and improved welfare benefits. Sociologist Colin Crouch observed, it was privatized Keynesianism The attacks on government welfare was in no doubt ideological. Books like Hayek's Road to Serfdom, which was rumoured to have been on the person or in the bag of Margaret Thatcher of all times, suggested that the welfare state would eventually lead down the road of totalitarianism. The welfare state was perceived by many on the right as misconceived. It was undermining the market economy and demoralising those it claimed to help. Welfare states were blamed for ending growth and fostering an economic downturn. It allowed special interests like labour unions and public employees into labour markets that should now be fluid and flexible. The first task of this new welfare state was convincing the public, who mostly benefited of course from the welfare state, that it was a socialist monstrosity. The public sector was bureaucratic, costly and inefficient. Handouts were the opium of the twentieth century. They led to dependency, idleness and crime. As de hit the people in the hardest regions in the West, the right-wing press started to demonise those who received welfare who only a few years earlier had stable employment. But, like all inventions, the welfare state did need updating for a new era. The tanks of World War I would not be as good in World War II. Technology has improved, but also the means of its use was different, and it was important to understand these changes. For the welfare state, therefore, reformers sought to eradicate dependency culture. But this change was not carried out with reformers' interest in maximising well-being, but ideologues determined to cut welfare. There was an emphasis on welfare-to-work programmes, despite the fact there was an ever-shortening of real jobs that people might want to make a good career out of. In Britain and America, in the context of mass unemployment, and low-wage markets, and little public childcare, these policies were devastating to people and families. Sociologist Jamie Peck stated, Workfare is not about creating jobs for people that don't have them. It is about creating workers for jobs that nobody wants. Close quotes. While in the US, George Bush shrank the federal government, so, in relative terms, it was smaller than at any point since the 1940s. This, of course, impacted the poor the most. Perhaps the greatest or worst legacy of the welfare state 1.0 is that perhaps much of it is still with us. We have government pensions, free education, unemployment, sickness benefits, and even health care in some places. The neoliberals simply impacted welfare for those in need and not those in work. Its inability to restart an industrial economy meant that many of these industrial workers who had worked in these industries for generations no longer had careers to go to. The welfare state did help to bring much of the working class into the middle classes, but it was the middle classes who largely paid pay for it. Their standard of living has not gone up. But the welfare state has problems is undeniable. The welfare state was not meant to be a replacement for families or jobs or the market. It was supposed to support it. But in the end, the welfare state has largely taken over much of our lives. The welfare state has always caused issues bubbling under the surface of wherever it's been instituted. In Britain, in the 1950s, the welfare state was causing inflation and limited growth. In the 1960s, there was too much bureaucracy. In the 1970s, it was the cause of stagflation. In the 90s, it was the cause of unemployment and dependency culture. And today, it is the public debt and its cost of the welfare state that has seen much of its criticisms increase. The welfare state is also not equal. Employers versus employees young versus the old, families with children and those without, taxpayers versus welfare recipients, high earners versus low earners. It causes a great divide in society. And one little shift in the welfare state may disproportionately affect one of these people. But perhaps today one of the largest problems is that the welfare state is increasingly serving those who are richest in society, who own assets. The welfare state creates perverse incentives, it gives aids to single mothers, which might lead to more out of wedlock births. Rent controls reduce the supply of rental properties. Tax credit may lead to employers paying lower wages. The fear is that all these things lead into a poverty trap, where people are prevented from going into full employment, as it may lead to a reduction in their benefits. And who can blame them? If you go into a low paid job where you're treated like scum, or don't work and you're treated like scum anyway, at least you aren't wasting 40 hours if you're weak. There are definitely some truths to the benefits of the welfare state, but it can't stay around forever. The dependency culture is often castigated, but how many of us are completely autonomous? We all at times do need somebody to lean on, and it's not immoral to ask for help. Not everybody can or does live in a perfect nuclear family. For the long-term unemployed, simple training schemes and not treating people like scum can rebuild their confidence and can be one of the best things a welfare state could do. The welfare state as it currently exists is even more out of date when we get to the problems of future automation. Welfare State 3.0 will be faced with problems of globalisation with the marketplace between countries, corporations and rich individuals simply getting up and moving if they don't like the tax regime the only hope is that the next level of automation leads to such an increase in living standards that the welfare state is effectively no longer needed western nations have deindustrialized and manufacturing jobs that were the mainstay of working class employment have almost been obliterated some countries such as germany and sweden have gone down the route of training their workers for high-skills and quality-production jobs. Britain has gone down the route of moving to a service-based and knowledge economy and letting market forces sort out much of the rest. The problem in recent years is not a lack of employment, but jobs for the working classes that are well paid. Older workers' organisations, such as Union Power, have disappeared. Deregulated labour markets, but still with minimum wages, mean that there is no true market equilibrium. The growth of alternative families where there was no single breadwinner was a boon to the economy when they joined the workforce, but now with more and more single parents the welfare state has not quite managed to address this issue. The growth of the elderly has put huge pressures on pensions, which comprise the biggest handouts of them all. Added to this is the pressure on healthcare and social care, that puts a great strain on the welfare state. The fact the baby boomers are retiring and most Western nations are relying on immigration to fill the workers' void, it gets you to the other welfare state's problem: immigration. The welfare state is not something that can be cut substantially. It is so vital to our modern states as an armed forces or the emergency services. Welfare states can be ineffective; they can be expensive, but no modern nation has worked out a way to get around it. For capitalism to function the modern welfare state is often seen as a necessity. As Marx and Engels pointed out, however, capitalism always revolutionises the society it inhabits, and created destruction, as Joseph Schumpeter described. For the time being, the welfare state is an essential invention to the welfare of people around the world. It has helped many get past squalor and want, and has allowed elements of capitalism to flourish and for society to move on following the events of the world wars. The welfare state is a result of the destruction of the first half of the 20th century. The welfare state may be good and it may be bad, but what it can't be denied is that it has been one of the most substantial inventions over the course of the latter half of the 20th century. And so for all these reasons, the welfare state is listed at number 77 on my list. Of the 100 greatest inventions of all time.